welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our deep values, the principles of the people who shape our common life, and how we might build habits of curiosity and empathy towards those who are not like ourselves. I am so delighted to welcome you back to this new series after a little bit of a hiatus. And to kick us off, we are very characteristically going deep quickly. We're going to talk about death today. Last year, Theos, which is the think tank under which the project of the sacred sits, had a bit of a year of death. And don't worry, we mean that in a really, I think, good, meaningful and important way. Theos launched a report about death, which you may well have seen in the media because there was a huge amount of courage about our changing attitudes to the way we want to die, and particularly about funerals and the fact that fewer and fewer people want funerals. Theos did an annual lecture with Dr. Catherine Mannix, who you're going to hear about a little bit in this interview. And that was accompanied by a new animation by our extremely talented animator, Emily Down, and a team in which Dr. Catherine Mannix talks about what to expect from death. It's an incredibly beautiful piece of work which has already travelled far and wide, and I'd really encourage you to go and check it out. And we are also thinking about death today because through that work, the lecture and the animation, we got to know Greg Wise, and that's who I'm going to be interviewing today. Greg is an actor, he is an activist, he's a writer, he's been an architect, he is a man of many talents. You may know him from uh, The Sense and Sensibility that had Kate Winslet and Emma Thompson in it, an absolute classic for Austin fans. You may know him more recently for The Crown. You may know him for standing beside his wife, Emma Thompson, on red carpets, or for his beautiful book, which he co-authored with his sister, Claire, about the process of the end of her life. I'm really delighted that we got to talk to Greg on the podcast and I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. If you're interested, at the end of every episode, I do a set of reflections on what I've heard and what it's left me thinking about. So I hope you will keep listening to those. But in the meantime, enjoy this conversation with Greg Wise. Greg, we are going to go deep fast. There's no chit-chat warm-up uh, here. Excellent. I'm terrible at small talk, you see. I'm always like straight for the intense. Um, you've had a little bit of time to think about what is sacred to you, but maybe before you reflect on that, how did the question land? Did it feel kind of warm and inviting or a bit spiky and off-putting or something you're very familiar with or something very unfamiliar? I think about the sacred a lot. Um, I'm actually writing a bit kind of tangentially about the sacred. Um, I liked the framing of what is sacred is something that you would fight hard for if it were threatened to be taken away from you. Mm. I think that's a wonderful way of looking at it because it puts things in a very clear perspective. Mm. Um, I was not brought up in any way in a religious household. I think, I hope I was brought up in a moral household. I think my clearest driving forces behind me are to try and be kind and to try and be inquisitive. And I think if you can try and do those two things, yeah. you're doing all right. Because I think the problem that we find, and we find a lot more now, is that we're too boxed in mm -hmm. thought 
and we're not inquisitive enough about other people's views and other yeah. people's political views or religious views. Um, and I'm very lucky now in my household that we have uh, a son who was from Rwanda. He's married to a Chinese girl. Um, I'm from a Central European background. I'm married to a girl who's half English, half Scottish. We still have a 91-year-old mum living opposite us. I was able to care for and be with my sister when she died. All of these things opening up the mind of someone who was brought up in the grim north in the 1970s is really useful, is really useful. So um, I feel very privileged to constantly be questioned by both myself, my family, mm. and the greater world in general. One of the ways I sometimes frame the question, what is sacred to you, or more kind of what kind of life do you want to live is, what do you want people to say about you at your funeral? And it really clarifies clarifies the mind, right? Like if, if, if you're going to die in a few years, what do you want people to stand up and say about you? And are you living as if that is the case? And it just removes some of the distractions. For sure. Um, I hope kind. Mm. I, think, I think that's the most important thing because kindness brings with it everything, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, and I know for a fact that having been with my sister on her journey to her death a few years ago, having been her full-time carer for the last three months of her life, 24-7 carer, trapped in her flat with her. She was dying of bone cancer, which you don't get better from, and is terminal and is quick terminal. And I think as a result of my time there with her and the time that allowed me moments of of quiet contemplation at the same time as having to step up and shower her change mm. her catheter do all of these things and be with her in the moments towards her death that has made me a better person mm. that has made me kinder and more compassionate and more generous and more caring and hopefully less judgmental and um and I think for me, that's been an essential shift uh, because, of course, we're the stars of our show mm. always, and especially yeah. as an actor. Come on. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. main character uh, energy is a given. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and to remember that you're just the roadie in someone else's show is really yeah. important. Um, but in terms of the wider spirituality, Mm. Um, and where I took myself off to after my sister died is into nature. And that's where I resonate. Mm. Um, and especially mountains, the high spaces. Because you've you've done a lot of climbing, right? I was hearing in your in your twenties you did quite extreme versions of climbing and hiking, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to do a lot of rock climbing, um, but I was never terribly good and I fell a lot. And and over time, the falls became worse, and and I lost the ability to be able to scale a vertical rock. Mm -hmm. But I never lost the pull of wanting to be up in the high spaces. So now I do uh, what is obviously 
just as dangerous, in fact, probably more dangerous. I did winter mountaineering. Um, so it's with the cramp- crampons and ice axes and ropes. And yeah, that, doesn't, that doesn't sound like a step down. It's not a step down. It's not a step down. But, but it, it, is, it is, for me, the essence of meditation. Hmm. I'm terrible at meditating. I can't sit there in the dark and try and picture the flame of a candle. I've tried. I've really tried. Yeah. But up, up in the high spaces, up in the snow, where all you can do is concentrate on step and breath mm. and gentle mammalian movement through an exquisitely mm. powerful landscape. All you can do is get into a meditative state mm. because you're not marveling at your surroundings. You're trying not to die. Yeah, complete intense focus. Complete intense focus. And, and, and being up in the high spaces brings with it so many things about life, position in life, perspective mm. on life, self-care, yeah. trust, faith, supplication. yeah. yeah. All of the things that I think, when we think about the sacred, yeah. these are words that we use. But I've, to me, it's the cathedral of rock yeah. rather than a man-made space yeah. or a God-made space, however one wants to look at it. I'm fascinated by that word for supplication. Does it feel in those moments like you are in some kind of conversation with nature, that you are asking something of it? Completely but you are asking something of something that does not care a jot. Mm. And that, to me, is the basis of it. Where you are doesn't care about you. You care about it. And hopefully within that movement, you then have to bring self-care in because Mm. you're in a place that doesn't care whether you live or die. It doesn't Mm. care that you're there. You You are completely insignificant. Therefore... You have to care about yourself because if you don't care about yourself, you die. Yeah. And you have to care about whoever is with you on your exploit and hope that they care about you as well. Yeah. So fascinatingly to me, I haven't had this, but within the world of mountaineering, there is the narcissistic drive, Mm. obviously. Mm. I want to be the first one up there. I want to, you know, we talk about conquering. Yeah. I think what is extraordinary about that is that the the scope, the scale, the size of the outward journey is absolutely, to me, mirrored in the inward journey Mm. of it all. Because you're meditative, because you're also having to exhibit extreme self-care and care for those around you. Yeah. Am I right in thinking that you, forgive me if this is painful, but you, you lost a friend who you mountaineered with. Yeah. Do you think that helped shape some of these perspectives? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, my very wonderful friend, Simon, who was killed when we were around about mid-twenties. Um, and of course, in mid-twenties, we're invulnerable. We, we, we were immortal. We are, I think, never more egotistical and never more sure about everything than from from our teens to our to the time that we start having to keep our receipts and doing our VAT returns. Um, and Simon was drowned. Um, uh, and he and I used to 
climb waterfalls and you know, do crazy climbing, climbing cranes and all sorts of things. Mm. He, he always lived very much on the edge. And the death of someone so potent and so powerful at the age of 25 reminded me that it is insane ever to have an idea of the shape of life. Mm. Um, I think I was fortunate that I never, I never planned. I used to travel a lot. I used to travel a lot on my own from probably mid-teens onwards, just throw a rucksack on and go off. And um, we have family in, in Germany, so I'd jump on a train in York and get off the train somewhere in southern Germany, having navigated all my way through and, uh, and then did quite a lot of traveling on my own later on. But never really planned anything. Always just wanted to set off and then see what happened. Mm. Um, and I've brought that with me into my more adult life where I've never had an idea of a career. Mm. I think that's just mad. Um, whatever comes in that seems appropriate at the time to do, do it. Yeah. Uh, and always retain the only power you have as a self-employed actor is the power to say no. Mm. to stuff um uh and i think throughout always having the idea that 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 lovely uh line isn't it god laughs when man makes plans yeah and having someone powerful die at a powerful age yeah is for me was very useful yes it um i know that your life has been kind of punctuated by these losses and moments of moral profundity and um I really want to dig into those but first I kind of want to locate you your origin story I guess I'd love to hear a bit about your childhood paint me a picture of Greg say age 11 where were you what were you doing how were you feeling about it uh, I was born in Newcastle uh, brought up pretty much in Northumberland yeah. Uh, we had a little cottage about 20 miles outside Newcastle where we'd spend all weekends and holidays. Yeah. Um, born into a interesting combination of Central European firebrand mother and stoic northern father. Um, my mum's mum was Croatian. Her father was Transylvanian. Uh, they'd met in Paris. My mum was born in Paris uh, of Jewish stock. They came over in the early 1930s, stayed here when the war started. My mum was one of the first women to study uh, architecture up in Newcastle. Um, my dad was just leaving the university at that point. He then became a professor of architecture. Um, always uh, reasonably stormy, uh, marriage and a reasonably bumpy childhood. And it was then that I knew that my place of safety and emotional protection was in the landscape, was mm -hmm. outside. Uh, and we were very lucky to have the Northumbrian landscape all around us. Uh, and it, that formed what I've carried on in my life, interestingly, that my place of safety is a place that an awful lot of people would feel unsafe in. Mm. Um, that I 
found my place of being swaying high in the treetops, having climbed every tree Hmm. around me, Um, climbing cliffs, uh, fording rivers, doing all of these things. And, and, And that I've just kept pushing that, I suppose, in my life to the extent now that that I do the winter mountaineering, which is, which is dangerous. Um, but it brings with it the idea of safety because you have to retain the safety of yourself in an uncaring environment. And I learned that very early as a child. Um, uh, and from very early age, that was my safe space, being outside. Um, it sounds sort of beautiful and also quite isolating. Forgive me if this is too nosy, but has that posture ever made it difficult to kind of be in trusting, reciprocal, to f- to find yourself se- place of safety in others? Uh, yes, but that's the gl- glory about being alive, isn't it? And um, being with my wife now for half my life. 28 years. I still want to give you a high five. I feel like anyone who's had a long marriage should be uh, <laughs> celebrated. That's, yeah. that's, that's serious soul work. Yeah, serious soul work. A lot of work. A lot of work. I mean, it's, it's, it's um, anyone who thinks it's easy hasn't done it. Um, <clears throat> I still know and I'm still reminded by my wife that when I spend too long on my own up in our cottage on the west coast of Scotland running feral, when I get back, it's tricky. Mm. Uh, it's the re-entry yeah. back into the atmosphere. It's coming back from the moon and yeah. you burn through the outer atmosphere before you re-enter the yeah. stability of the, of the world and the family life. Uh, and I know if I spend too long on my own because I am hermetic, I'm, I'm, I'm happiest mm. in the wilds on my own. Um, that when I do have to come back and renegotiate how to live with my partner, with my family, mm. uh, it can it can be bumpy. But but we're used to that. We're well versed in that anyway, being actors, because often we're away for weeks, sometimes months at a time, filming or doing a play or whatever else. And yeah. So 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 the setup of the family dynamic anyway has been. There's always been moments where. Coming one or other of us yeah. has been a part. And then having to negotiate how to find our, our shape again at the yeah. end of that. Yeah. That sounds like a, a useful set of skills to have. Mm-hmm. You were in boarding school, I think. What was the experience of that like? It was a boarding school. I was, I was a day boarder. So right. um, it was six days a week from, from half past eight till half past five. Right. Every day. Um, but I loved it. I was very fortunate that I loved school. Um, and I was fortunate that I was both um, in the first team of rugby mm. and also I sang in the choir, which you didn't, you weren't really allowed to do both things. <laughs> you could you be in either, two tribes. No, you couldn't, you couldn't. But e- e- even, as a, even as a young thing, because I loved singing, I loved the church music, but I also loved playing rugby. I thought, well, why can't I do both? So it was, that was always... Yeah. An interesting dynamic yeah. there. Um, and and even at that young age, I didn't want to be told what I was and wasn't allowed to do. If stuff mm. was on offer, I wanted to do whatever was on offer. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I keep that 
in my life, you know, um, being an actor, but also writing, also trying to make documentaries, also um, yeah, doing Strictly. Yeah. Um, just keep finding new things, new avenues of exploration. Yeah. What was the... Um, it's got a reputation of being quite a religious school, and obviously there was... Um, you were in church choir. How did that... How, how, what was your emotional experience of being in a school that was telling a Christian story? Or was it, was it more in the background than I assume? Um, it, it, no, we had chapel. We had chapel um, in, in the mornings. Um, I went back in on Sundays, so even... Seven even, days a week. Even though I was there six days a week, I also went in on a Sunday morning. I loved, I loved the church music. Uh, and we had we had a wonderful. Do you get to sing in the minster? I got I sung solos in the minster. Wow! I had a piece written for me actually to sing at the very top of the rood screen. I went to York University, so it's oh, a very right. dear place to me. Yeah. The minster. Oh, it's the most beautiful, beautiful, beautiful building. Uh, and I <laughs> I was singing a solo right at the top of the rood screen, really high, both within the church and also in the notes that I had to achieve. And then I had to sprint down the stairs, these winding stairs, all the way down to the bottom to do a duet with another chorister. <laughs> um, uh, which was a, a, actually was a piece written, written for me and for the other boys to sing. But I loved singing within the choir, um, Talis and Palestrina and yes. all the anthems. And York... I don't know if you ever went there, but they had the um, Epiphany service yeah. in the Minster. And they had the Minster Song School starting off in the, I think, the um, Zouch Chapel and us starting in the Chapter House. And they turned off all the lights in the Minster <laughs> and the two choirs process singing with candles and they get to the very end, to the huge doors at the end of the... Minster, and as they walk down the aisle, the lights in the church come on behind them. It was, mm. it was. I think it was a Victorian uh, construct that it was the light of God coming in, and it was uh, exquisite. And the and it's the, making my um, it's giving me goosebumps just yeah, thinking about it. It was, it was beautiful, and I loved it. And I, what was wonderful, even though I had no connection to the dogma. I had a connection to the music mm. and to the drama of it yes. all yeah. and, and how the music affected me as a singer and how it affected the people listening to it. Yeah. Um, and still now I feel that. I mean, I've just been doing a pile of, of um, charity carol concerts over the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, and I love, I love singing in church. It's yeah. wonderful. Yes. I am... Um... I went to a carol service last week and they'd rocked up all the carols and I was like, no, no, <laughs> we want contemplative and I solemn. And I, want, I want to be able to do the descant on the last verse because I yeah. know all the descants. Yeah, get the guitar out of here. Why is there a guitar yeah. in here? Um, speaking of drama, when did the sense that acting might be something that you wanted to pursue, begin to emerge? Was it a slow burn or a real gear change? Because you studied architecture first, right? I studied architecture first, but I knew then as I was studying, before I started studying, that I, I probably wanted to try and be an actor. Right. 
Um, That's a long course to do as a... <laughs> I just did the first degree. I only did three years. Okay, okay. Um, uh, 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 but, I, you know, I was, I was Joseph in the Nativity play um, at, my, uh, at my kindergarten where they then expelled me shortly after. For... The only person I know who, who was expelled from nursery school. It was great. Um, I think I just I had a lot of energy uh, and uh, I didn't quite know what to do with it. Um, and I, I'm told that in the nativity play, play I, I picked up Jesus by his hair, which probably wasn't wasn't the right thing to do. Yeah, beginning to be a bit more sympathetic with the yeah. nursery school. <laughs> um, but but I was lucky. I was I was brought up in a house, artistic house. Both both parents were architects. Both also um, painted. Both sides of the family fine artists, mm. painters and sculptors. Um, so there was always an awful lot of art. There was always space for exploration um, uh, uh, and along with my sister, we were fortunate um, in in the house we lived in in York to have um, a room for the kids and a playroom that spilled out onto the garden, so all the local kids would come round and yeah uh, and my sister would organize us all and we'd yeah, we do what kids do and be the pirates on the ship or moon landings or whatever else. And I just thought, yeah. I love that. I love dressing up and pretending. Yeah. Um, and that's what I've done for the rest of my life, just dressed up and pretended to be someone else. Yeah. What do you think, what role do actors play in our common life? What are, what are, what are they there for? Depends how you look at it. I mean, there's the the sort of more Eastern European Grotowski idea that we are the sacrificial lambs. Um, you suffer on behalf of everyone else. Yeah, because, because the mummers, the original, what the, the dramas that people would see from medieval time mm. onwards, York, the mystery plays, Yeah, you would see enacted out on a cart the story of Adam and Eve, the flood, yeah. the morality tales, the actor as the sacrificial lamb, yeah. And and you look at you look at Shakespeare, you look at you look at everyone. You go, if you behave in this way, this will be the judgment inflicted upon you by God or man or combinations of the two. Yeah. So probably don't kill your best friend. That's probably the the best thing. So there is obviously always within every tale a sense of a morality tale, a sense mm. that we are standing up on a cart in a town square yeah. doing, a, doing a moral story yeah. for people to take whatever they take from it yeah. to hopefully think about it. And um, so there is a sense of that. But that if you, for, you forget at your peril... Yeah. That you are also an entertainer. Yeah. And that was that was the most. Yes, I mean that's the power of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My first job leaving drama school, where I'd spent years, three years, doing Shakespeare and Chekhov and Gorky and whoever else, and learning the Stanislavski and 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 movement and voice and yeah. Um, you know, I suppose reasonably full of myself and a little bit precious. And my first job was a rock and roll musical at Liverpool Playhouse. 
which I was obviously thrilled to get because yeah. I got my equity card with it and I got paid. Yeah. But I was tiny bit sniffy until the first preview when 750 people in an auditorium went crazy. Yeah. And I thought, oh, I see I'm an entertainer. Yeah. That is such a helpful... It was really sparking a thought when you were speaking about one of the things I studied at York was the mystery place. Spent a lot of time oh. like walking the streets thinking, where did these carts go? Mm. How did these stories? And they were obviously pre in a pre-literate age, right? Mm. Pre the translation of the scriptures into mm. English. And I had never thought of the performers in the mystery place as essentially the preachers of the day, yeah, as essentially, yeah. I will communicate the sacred stories to you and therefore I will help you think about how you live. That's it. And I think that is what good stories and good art does. It presents alternative lives and alternative paths to us in ways that help us go, okay, this, how do I want to live? What does this mean for me? What, what is, what is good? What tends to end in heartbreak? You know, what, what, who, which type of characters tend to come out well, that kind of thing. But it's because that entertainment element is in there that, um, we don't feel preached at or lectured, you know, C.S. Lewis said he started writing fiction because it helps, um, it helps truth sneak past the watchful dragons of the mind there we are. There in we an are. amazing way. And you've just really joined some things for me there. No, 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 absolutely. And also not to forget, alongside that, that you are able to push people into places they maybe don't want to go hmm. as long as you also make them laugh. And if you make someone laugh, you can actually push the agenda quite a bit further. And one of the things about the mystery plays, they're very funny. Yes, they are. They are very funny. Uh, and when you look at Chaucer, it's very funny. Uh, and allegedly Shakespeare's very funny as well. But, um, but, but, but humour, humour, humanity, it's yeah. the same thing. Yeah. It's the same thing. Exploring the human condition. Um, and it's, it's one of the things that I'm always very clear about when I'm writing or constructing something, you have to make it humorous. Because if yeah. you make it humorous, you're, you're in a way uh, getting to the nub in a simpler and, and, and quicker way. Mm. You can say a lot of difficult things if you couch it in humor. Yes. Uh, um, and, and, and every, every story, um, it's why we, we still do Shakespeare. It's why we still do adaptations of Jane Austen or whoever, because we're talking, the stories are always very simple. They're always very similar because we're exploring the human condition and we're exploring the human, the human to human relationship. Mm. And we're exploring an awful lot of time, the human to the divine, mm. be that fate or however you want to look at it. Mm. Um, uh, uh, and there are very few stories so so yeah. uh, um, which is why we continually go back and look at the ancient Greeks and we look at the medieval and we look at the Shakespearean and um, yeah. uh, uh, because we're all trying to make sense of what it means to be alive which is what 
our discussion is all about. Yeah. Whether an idea of the spiritual helps one make sense of how to live. Yes. How does that, as you were talking, I was just thinking about how much power there is in that, you know, to be able to use humor, to take people places they don't think they want to go. Do you ever get scared by the power that you can wield in your craft? I'm always drawn and have oddly, um, generally played the dark. Almost always. I've never been the moral center of a story. I've never had the moral agenda. Um, And maybe because my sort of Central European heritage has given me... I was going to say, I think it's just the eyebrows, Greg. All the eyebrows. Um, But I never looked like the sort of archetypal (laughs) British hero, but was always very good at playing the, the... the dark, the darkness, because the darkness is essential in any story. Hmm. And our darkness is essential within us. We have to be able to accept and respect and listen to it. Um, uh, and, and oddly, our, our daughter, um, I think, has seen everything that her mum's ever made. And almost nothing that I've ever made, because generally, I'm the murderer, the rapist, the paedophile, the psychopath. Hmm. Um, uh, it's not what she wants to watch, uh, and she doesn't want to see her dad doing that. Yeah. What do, do you have? Have there had been times in your career where you've thought, "I don't, I don't want to do that. I want, I want, to, I want to, pre- you know, present the hero's story or something." Or no. do you just feel like that's no? No, I mean, it's a difficult thing to say in a within the Theos podcast on the sacred, but the, <laughs> devil, has the, better, the devil has the better tunes. Yeah. Always. Um, I, the, moral, the moral majority isn't interesting. Yeah. At all. Yeah. It is the right thing to do. Where's the drama in the right thing to do? The drama is when all these other things come and you question and you turn yourself away from it. Yeah. And then hopefully there's redemption and you're brought back. You know, that's this sort of standard three-act play of our, of our errant night. But, uh, I mean, this is like, this, this is something I come back to again and again with artists and creative because it, is, it drives me bonkers because you're right, it's completely true. I never remember if it's Simone Weil or Hannah Arendt who talks about the banality of evil. So mm-hmm. fictional good is boring. Mm-hmm real goodness is compelling you know fictional evil is sexy and glamorous and interesting real evil is banal yeah, it's dumb yeah what what happens in the transition why can't we tell stories of goodness or why is it so difficult to tell stories of goodness that you have to do it so slant you know you have to do it so crept up you, upon you, you have to tell any large story tangentially mm. you cannot tell a large story front on yeah it's not interesting it's interesting when stuff comes through at great speed and cuts it off just follow that follow that yeah um um um, it's 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 one of the great joys of story writing finding finding something that just comes and cuts straight across Um, and as you say it is as tedious to see someone who is good and is just good, 
as it is to see someone who is bad and just bad, unless we understand where this comes from. Because there's always the crucible somewhere in a story. And I play an awful lot of the time uh, difficult, dangerous people. Mm. And I always try and find a moment within the piece uh, 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 where if we don't sympathize as an audience, at least we can understand and empathize. Mm. Because generally the dark is driven by a pain. Yeah. Uh, and it's and it's a historic pain that is still being played out. If we can see the genesis of that, mm. then we can understand. If someone's just evil for evil's sake, it's not interesting. Yeah. It's not interesting. We have to see the story within it. If someone is good for goodness sake, that's not interesting. We have to see, you know, the 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 the, the sinner who turns. Yeah. That's where the drama is. Yeah. Oh, it's so interesting. Um, you give me such a juicy picture of a role that an actor can play in our common life. I'm always interested by, by these positions, the hats people wear and how it's shaping the way we are together and our ability to treat each other as fully human, to be kind to each other, to offer that curiosity and empathy that you're talking about. One of the other hats that both you and Emma wear is campaigners around the environment and mental health and latterly kind of grief and death. Did that just come very naturally or was there a moment where you thought, okay, I have a responsibility to use my voice on some of these issues now? The grief and death because of my sister, mm. um, very much so. And because I was able to, I was fortunate enough to be in a situation where I could drop everything and move in with her and yeah. be her carer and be with her up to her death. Um, I'd also been with my mum as she died. Um, I'd been with my dad all the way through um, to his death, but being my dad, obviously he was going to wait. I'd been with him for months. As soon as I said, I'm just going to take a week off, he decided to die. Um, I think with my sister, because she'd written a blog when she originally was diagnosed with breast cancer just to let people know what was going on and then she really enjoyed the writing process and found she was actually rather a good and very funny writer when she became too ill with the, the bone cancer and I moved in I took over her blog as a form of self-defense in mm. a way because I didn't want to have to spend the precious moments that I had not looking after my sister calming all her friends down yeah. So I said, this is what's happening, here we are. And to start with, it was very factual and very um, uh, sort of um, not cold, but understanding that I didn't want to ever write anything that would make someone pick up the phone and go, oh, my God, what's going on? Yeah. The, the, the blog itself was... was was written, as I say, originally as a sort of defense, and then it became um, actually a very important thing for me to be able to do because I was alone with my dying sister for months. And it, it helped me, I think, in my, in my mental health, but also to just try and explore 
a little bit of what it is to be alive and what it is to face mortality of the closest person in my life. And the the book was taken up by a publisher and and I said, um, we can't edit this. This was written as a real-time document. We can't edit it. Mm-hmm. The The most yeah. frustrated and kind of angry I was with my sister in my writing was the evening before she died. I didn't know she was going to die and I didn't want to go back in and re-edit, making myself look yeah. l- lovelier. Um, so the piece... The, the book was published and, and, and I think has been very helpful. And, and that introduced me into the world of death and grief and end of life. Uh, and I felt that I could be useful within that world as a lay person. Uh, and I found myself on mm. various book, book tours and at, at book festivals and places public speaking about it and finding myself public speaking with Mm. an extraordinary woman called Dr. Catherine Mannix, who um, was one of the first palliative doctors in the country and ended up running the Marie Curie Hospice in Newcastle for many years. And she'd just written a book about death. And we found ourselves talking together and it was a very potent combination of an exquisite professional and an absolute idiot. Um, and, uh, and it was Catherine who, who was talking at the Theos, uh, event last month. Um, and, uh, she and I have kept on our conversations, have kept working together. Um, we're patrons of the death doulas. We do little bits of work with, academics on how to talk to children about death. Um, I'm involved in, mm. in a wonderful organization called the Good Grief Trust. I still do work for Marie Curie and for Macmillan. Um, <laughs> I, I won a, an award earlier in this year from a, a, a Scottish palliative charity. Um, uh, just, just on my work, on just, uh, it's called the Demystifying Death Award which is rather wonderful. Um, it's uh, wonderful. Isn't that great? So, so I find now that I feel immensely privileged. The, the, the death of my sister and the lead up to that was almost an exact balance of trauma and privilege. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of life <laughs> is a balance of trauma and privilege yeah. as well. Um, and yeah. I realize that actually I can be quite useful in, in being able to talk openly, honestly, and hopefully humorously about how bad we are in this country about uh, end yes. of life and, and death. It was, I was watching on Loose Women the other day and the, the, it was just really funny because pe- they were using all these euphemisms for death, yeah. like losing someone and passing away. And you're like, no, they died. Yeah. They died. Let's just say death. It was really, um, even still now, the sense of like discomfort around it 
And I wanted to ask about that divide because I'm very interested in anything that has the potential to divide us from each other. And what do we need in order to be able to hold that relationship, to hold that connection? And when someone is themselves dying or is living with grief, we can feel like this huge chasm has opened up, that they are on the other side of some metaphysical existential profundity that we don't know how to navigate. And it can be very lonely, I think. What helps us cross that divide? What do we need to know, Greg? Wow, that's a big question. Um, We, I think, have to start talking and have to start learning the language because it is a different language. It's a new language and it's a language we're not taught about grief, bereavement, death. Um, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in the moment at school where, is it called a PSHE or something, public personal sexual health education? Education. Within all of that, let's talk about death. Within where do babies come from? Can we talk about where do babies go to? Um, and we 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 need to start being able to talk about death and grief, um, and have it more matter of fact. Because generally, we only are accosted by it in extremis. Mm. We only start to think about it when we get the terminal diagnosis or when we meet a mate in the street who's just lost their parent or spouse or whoever. Um, And one of the things that I'm trying to do now, and I'm bullying like crazy everyone I know, to start talking about it in the pub with their mates, over Sunday lunch with the family, going for a walk with a chum, um, end of life. Uh, And also... Um, crazily, people still haven't got wills sorted out. Uh, it's it's this this odd, both adolescent and also ultimately the denial that we're all heading the same way. Um, and uh, with the work I've done with the with the doulas, who are an extraordinary outfit, they the, they call themselves a midwives for death they're people who help you die um putting together an advanced plan for the end of life uh and i've sent that off to all all chums now saying just fill this out and make sure that those you love know where it is and then uh, a thing called a death box or a death file where are the spare keys who's your pension provider what's your accountant's details your bank account details, whatever else. What's the password for this? All these things. Mm. Because I've had to try and unpick all of this from my mum, from my dad, from my sister. Uh, and it's, it's, it's almost impossible. So get all this information sorted out because it is an act of love. It's one of the things that I bang on a, a lot about now. We think it's loving to be reticent. We think it's loving not to talk about our death to to our loved ones but in fact it's cruel yeah. it's that simple i think um 
Yeah. And 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 this the the sooner we can start to open up these conversations that are difficult and people may be slightly reticent. The sooner we can start to do that, the more able we'll all be to hopefully have a good death yeah. and have everything in order for those that we leave behind. So that Unlike me, they don't have to sit on a phone to someone who's screaming data protection and I have to talk to the account holder and me saying, I've just told you the account holder is dead. Yeah. Uh, we all just yes. have to be slightly better. Yes, you're right. There's a sort of, I liked what you said about that adolescent, that mm. there is something sort of deeply grown up about taking responsibility for things in the future that you don't know when they'll be. You know, that kind of forward planning that is care for other people. I have actually just written myself a note to finally sort out my will. <laughs> why, Please. Why and can we, can, we, can we take grown up out, because that's a bit pejorative, and can we say loving? Okay. Loving. Yes. It's a bit more loving for yeah. oneself and for yeah. those we love. Yeah. One of the things that can come up when we're thinking about our own death is fear and questions of pain and interdependence. And I know you've spoken quite publicly about being in favor of changing the law around assisted dying. Mm. It's one of those topics that can be a deep divide. People have very different intuitions about what is sacred in that um, moment, how we set ourselves up as a society to live together with as much care and humanity as we can. Have you... Have you learned anything about how we navigate that divide with kindness and with with curiosity rather than getting very entrenched in our potentially opposing positions? It's really hard. It's really hard. Um, it's hard across the board, really. Um, I was with my mum for the last few months of her life. She was dying of leukemia. And she would rail at me, you wouldn't do this to a dog. The day after she died, when I went to register her death, oddly, I bumped into her GP. And I said to her GP, we've got to get better at sorting out. Um, assisted dying and I said this is what my mum said you know you would have put a dog down by now and her doctor said your mum had more than enough medication in her house to kill herself mm. she didn't kill herself because you were there and we had this this time this very healing time because we'd had a reasonably bumpy relationship of her last months together and me being there with her and it was very powerful um it was not a situation that either of us would have chosen to be in with her being ill and in pain mm -hmm. but we found finally a very calm caring loving space together at the end of her life which was a wonderful place to have found ourselves 
mm. after a fair amount of bumpiness over the years. Similarly with my sister, we'd always had a very good, very close relationship, but it became something wholly other in the last months. I always thought that when I got the diagnosis, I would take myself up into the hills with a bottle of whiskey yeah. and do the, do the hypothermic route out. And <laughs> That's just a been, very you approach to assisted time. Yeah. Having been with my mum and with my sis and in, in a way also with my dad, um, I realise that that's, that's kind of cruel because I'm taking away from those that love me the option mm. to care for me at that moment in my life. That mm. said, I absolutely also claim my right to say enough yeah. and stop. And God bless you all, but I'm going to take myself away now. Yeah. So you can have yeah. both. You can have both. Um, yeah. And I know that it's, it's, it is cruel not to allow those that love me these moments with me at my end before yeah. I say, yeah, stop now. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think we have to find a way of being able to legislate for an assisted dying with all the checks and balances that will obviously be required because, of course, the first thing someone says, yes, but what, you know, what if they're just trying to save some money and they don't want to spend all of the cash that you would have left to them keeping you in a nursing home for the last six years? What a, yeah. There's always going to be these yeah. issues. Yeah. Um, but we have to be able to, to approach this with the kindness and compassion that hopefully will be shown to us when we are in this same position. Um, I'm, I'm certain that it will happen at some point. All the polls, all the, all the Ipsos Mori polls, all the, whatever else that comes out reasonably regularly has round about 70% of the population wanting it but for whatever reason, mm. we can't legislate for it. That will change mm. at some stage. Um, I also want to petition and legislate for my right to be composted. <laughs> Which is not legal at the moment. I think, yes. Which is a, um, a beautiful metaphor as well as an actual thing that happens I think mm. or the life that we leave can create fertile soil, yeah. soil for others That's it. That's it. That's Greg it. I could talk to you about many other things um but on the note of composting our lives for fruitfulness <laughs> for the future uh I want to uh, say a huge thank you for speaking to me on the sacred thank you Elizabeth it was gorgeous thank you well Loads to chew on there. I think the first thing that struck me is his sacred value of kindness and how many people say that and yet how hard that is to hear as something with heft, right? It's one of those words that has been um, somewhat drained of its power, of its value, of its ability to land with us in our imagination as something vital and vibrant 
um, and worth our paying sustained attention to. It feels quite pastel to me, quite mild um, as a concept. And the older I get, the more I think noticing and trying to resist that temptation in us to let uh, the things that actually make up a good life, which often aren't very sexy or original or grabby or gritty, um, slide to the edges of our consciousness and spend our whole time and attention on things that are flashy and shiny, uh, but ultimately unfulfilling. I sometimes think about the screw tape letters, which was this book that uh, C.S. Lewis wrote about, um, this kind of satire on, you know, if you, if, if you were a demon trying to tempt people away from the good life, what would you do? And a lot of it is misdirection and redirection. And I can just imagine, um, I can just imagine this letter from this older demon to this younger demon about kindness, you know, make kindness seem a bit boring. Um, make cynicism seem attractive, you know, let cynicism appeal to your unstable ego and your, um, your status craving. Uh, and just, you know, forget about kindness. It's something that we grow out of. It's something for children. Enrages me <laughs> how fragile we are as humans and how easily led away from the good. And so it was great for Greg to really put that front and center again. I love the phrase he used, cathedral of rock. Did you hear that? I really loved uh, this picture of him climbing and this uh, spirit, it's, it's very spiritual terminology he's using, right? About supplication on the mountain and realizing your own insignificance. Um, I think a lot of people ha have uh, a sense that when you strip everything back, when it's just kind of you and the natural world, there's a clarity around that. There is an ability to see what's important. There's an ability to, to see yourself a bit more clearly as well as the world. Um, yeah, the cathedral of rock going to it in supplication has really stayed with me. And what really struck me with Greg is his freedom. When I was preparing for the interview, it's like, oh, this is an interesting CV. You know, yes, he's an actor and he's perhaps best known as an actor, but there's been whole swathes of time where he's not been acting. He's been looking after his kids or he's been um, being a garden designer or he's been uh, nursing his dying sister or he's been um, doing all kinds of things, which probably we don't know about. It's none of our business. Uh, and how sort of refreshing that is because he's got no... Um, doesn't feel that doesn't feel the need to explain it away, you know. So there's so much CV advice that's like, don't have a gap in your CV, don't change course, you know. That we expect very talented and ambitious people to sort of have this straight line um, of, you know, better and better things within one particular field. And I really like the comfort that Greg has with just I don't have a plan. I do what I'm interested in. I do what I'm good at. You know, I do what feels um, good to me in the moment. Probably partly, you know, so much of this is ego. That, that feels closer to where I am, <laughs> planless. Um, but also because I think so much, as we talked about with acting, is about the available stories to us. We are story-made uh, creatures. And, and just listening into the story of someone who's like, yeah, I've just done what I'm interested in is um, really reassuring. I really love this. Again, this is probably nosiness, but I really love, one, I love hearing about long marriages, um, 
I really love the honesty of him being like, you know, he has really hermit tendencies and he'll go away to a cabin or to the woods. And that when he comes back in, it's really bumpy. There's a re-entry. I think he talked about like when you re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, something, there's a burning up, uh, which was uh, fascinating. Um, but that they have made that work for them and the coming and the going, that an acting life or any kind of sort of unstandard life requires of you that they've worked out a rhythm that really works and they're still here kind of several decades later. It just, um, again, it was a joy to hear about. Just a sort of visual image, really, of Greg singing in um, York Minster. And obviously it's very dear to my heart as a place, but this idea of him as a choir boy, you know, this beautiful, uh, pure voice and then bolting it down the steps to get to a different place in the cathedral to sing and the the formative um, role of that sacred mu- music of the talis um, on him and, and his view of the world. I do feel so aware of the way what we are exposed to in childhood, the way the things that are seen as normal and part of a world that we are allowed to access in childhood really changes um, often what we do for the rest of the life, what we feel able to do, what we feel we have permission to do. And I just, I just, um, I'm always glad when people have had those experiences of beauty in their childhood. And I want that for my kids and for all kids. Um, the imaginative space it creates about what the world are, is like, I think is really important. And finally, we went, we went all over the place with this lovely um, inquiry in very new age language, um, about what actors are doing and what act, what actors and artists, what role they play in our common life, how are they shaping our public conversation? And it will really stay with me, this sense of um, almost every play is a mystery play. Every story is a morality story insofar as it allows us to imaginatively play out another life or another set of choices. And that's just good for building empathy, right? It's good for um, seeing the world from someone else's perspective. It almost always softens us towards them. It's also good for helping shape our choices and helping us understand uh, how lives work and um, who, who comes out more whole, you know, who, who ends up more human, what kind of choices you have to make in your life to be in my language, fully alive to, um, not just succeed on the terms of, you know, whatever leaderboard, uh, your industry or your society has set up for you, but to succeed by staying fully human and, and fully alive. And the, the idea that Actors are both, yes, entertainers. They're both, you know, they're clowns. The, the thing about the, whatever it was, the School of Rock musical was, was a wonderful, humbling anecdote. Um, not necessarily humbling. It sounds really fun. Uh, but that in so doing, they help the rest of us make ourselves because we are story-made selves, um, storied selves in Alistair McIntyre's language. Lovely. 
I really enjoyed uh, that conversation. I'd love to hear from you. Any thoughts that it sparked, anything um, that you want to reflect on or feedback, you can do it via our email. Um, Both the Sacred uh, as a team and myself individually are on Twitter and Instagram. And I also write a substack called morefullyalive.substack.com and you can engage with me in the comments on there. I really do love being in conversation with you and I hope that today's episode has been... um, a spacious place in your day. Sacred is, as I said, a project of the think tank Theos. The production team are Dan, who you might have met on our recent Ask Me Anything episode, Fiona and myself. Um, We are edited by Drew Hawley and our music is by Luke Stanley. You can find us everywhere you find your podcasts. And as always, it really, really helps. If you haven't yet left us a review, this is your time, this is your day get that thumb moving do it now if you have a huge thank you i love reading them and perhaps more secretly like i may never know about it but more i think impactfully and relationally send an episode to a friend start a conversation that goes deep maybe even talks about death today i'll speak to you next week <laughs>